Hey, hello everybody, and welcome back to another episode of PC Gaming Classics, aka the Backer Page Podcast. Uh, this is a podcast about 90s PC gaming. I am one of your hosts, Phil Ivanik, and with me is Jeremy Peel. Hello. Hi, Jeremy. How are you doing, mate? I'm good, thanks. I am. Um, yeah. I think we actually forgot to get um, Samuel Matthew to approve the name, the Backer Page. Uh, we just yeah. did it, but I think they're at peace with it now. You can call it what you like, really. It's it's your podcast. That's what the backer page alludes to. It's it exists because of kind backers, yeah, and, uh, and wealthy benefactors. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a sort of dual name entity at this point. It's the backer page informally. But I think I think in, in the paperwork, it's PC Gaming Classics. Um, yeah, let us know your thoughts on uh, on which name you prefer. Yeah, we've got a we've got deep on the self analysis already. But yeah, the deal is we're covering six um brilliant games from the the 90s era of uh, the PC platform. Last time we did uh, System Shock 2, didn't we? In forensic detail. We did. Um, yeah. Um you weighed in on that, listeners. Uh and yeah, the feedback was really good. I loved that. <laughs> loved well, good loved feedback. into all that. Good. Yeah. <laughs> isn't it isn't that nice when you get feedback and it's good? Um Yeah. Yeah. Let's, Which let's is incidentally some... not what happens um when you publish articles on the internet. Should probably yeah, stress how rarely. how different and lovely it is to um you, writers don't read the comments. Well, they try not to because it always goes wrong. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. end up reading oh, something God. that ruins your week. So, um, oh, I can I could probably tell you verbatim some of the comments on my reviews from many years ago, like before I learned to stop looking at, uh, at comments and or social media. Like yeah. it really, it's the ones that you know are a bit true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And most of them are a bit true. You know, you've never done perfect work, and like reviews particularly are like totally subjective things. So yeah. if someone calls you up on like uh, an opinion that you just you you hold really uh really closely and uh, you know they fundamentally disagree with your point of view you're like well yeah that is just as valid you know yeah <laughs> it's not like there's there's a scientific methodology to these things and you pour in bloody like lithium on a on a game disc and it's like oh it turns out this is a six it is so subjective and if someone calls you out then you've really got no recourse yeah um, i mean i shouldn't give anyone the ammo but if you really want to get to me in the comments you want to say that oh this right is trying bit too hard because oh, i am yeah. trying really hard at all yeah. times and uh you know if i've if i've pulled it off then you don't notice and it looks you know fairly effortless but sometimes i guess you can see the strain oh blimey yeah well would you rather that or not they're not trying they're phoning it in yeah i don't know which would both of them would hurt me because I think both can be true at different points in time. It's very rare. There's probably been 10 reviews in my life where I've hit the middle ground where like I'm not having to think too much and labor over like clever phrasings. It's all just coming out really well. But I'm also super engaged with it and I feel pleased with the end result. It's a magical space that you get into and it happens very yeah. rarely for me. Yeah, no, same. We've given listeners the tools to destroy us here. So it's very trusting. This, uh, but then I space. feel like, based on the feedback we've had from the first episode of the podcast, I don't think they want to destroy us, Jeremy. Not yet, anyway. No. Not until they turn on us. Maybe maybe some of our opinions about 90s PC games will uh, it'll all come crashing down. But until then, um, yeah, thank you so much for everybody who um, who has fed back. 
Um, it has all been massively positive stuff. Uh, let's find some from the Discord and read them out, Jeremy. Do yeah. you have any to hand? Um, I will do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I think I'm hitting the vein of like when, when the um, episode first came out here. I want to get to... Oh, yeah, here we go. So, uh, well, Ben Blaster was really looking forward to the show. I'm not sure if, if they came back to say that they enjoyed it, but they were certainly <laughs> excited about it. Um, Ian Welby, here we go. Really enjoyed the episode today. It's a game I've never played, but as Jeremy says, it's part of the lineage of a genre I like very much now. Uh, the big compliment I'd pay to this episode is that it does feel like an episode of the back page despite no large men. I have no idea how large Phil and Jeremy actually are because of their chemistry. So they're they're so no, so they're knowledgeable. I'm trying to t- twist that into a better compliment. They're so knowledgeable <laughs> and, st- and interesting, but still having a laugh um, because they know each other. We do know each other. Good stuff. Yeah. And I'll be looking forward to the next one. Thank you very much, uh, Ian Welby, for that. Yeah, and there's an important question embedded in there as well. And uh, I am the larger of the pair of us. Um, yeah, n- I don't neither think of us are as tall as, as Samuel and Matthew are. Um, I'm five so, eleven. Yeah. Um, so I don't I'm know roughly, if I roughly six foot. Are oh, you? Yeah, yeah. So you you probably just sneak into the the height restrict. It's like the opposite of no. It is like the the you have to be this that tall to write this podcast. Work. Yeah. yeah, it's not the opposite of that. <laughs> you, only let, you only let small people on. It'd be a disaster. They'll be flying out of the the um the seatbelts and things. Let's not even think about that. Yeah. Uh, let's find some more. Naislin uh, is a Discord regular. Said uh, really great stuff, Jeremy and Noodles. That's a reference to, uh, oh, to your God, um, that, false yeah. assertion that you've you've gone by <laughs> Noodles in a band for many years. <laughs> yeah, I have in fact Noodles from the Offspring. Yeah, yeah. Naislin said my parents' nineties PC could barely run Zubini, so it's lovely to experience System Shock Two vicariously through the pod. There was a lot of Zumbini's chat going on, actually. And, yeah, we weren't sure if we were being... If if, if it was satire, like if Zumbini's was a real game or not. But, uh, yeah, a lot of people... Yeah, big deal <laughs> for a lot of people in their early years. Uh, educa- quasi-educational game played in schools, apparently. Yeah, more of a US thing, right? I guess. I guess that must have been it. Yeah. Um, I've got one here from Campbell. Uh, I also really enjoy the episode. I don't really have any mileage with 90s PC games, uh, but like the regular Backpage podcast episodes, it's fun listening to people talk about things they're passionate about. Look forward to the rest of the series. I thought the Review Wars segment was great as well. Uh, thank oh. you very much, Campbell. Very kind. There's one note here from Tofu Jacob. Just finished at the Backers page. System Top Shock 2 app and thought it was great. Someone who's never been a big PC gamer, a lot of those early games are huge blind spots. Great discourse and energy too. Look forward to hearing the rest. Oh, That's nice, much. isn't it? It's um, nice to were... hear that we do have uh, rapport because I'd always, you know, <laughs> I, I, I enjoy our conversations. <laughs> yeah. We're not deluding ourselves. Yeah, it's weird, it's weird to sort of have your friendship uh, like tested by an external ear. Like, these two get on. <laughs> yeah, they seem they seem like they like each other. Like, phew. It's <laughs> a possibility we... that I hadn't um, considered is that we, we make the podcast and then have our friendship picked apart and people go, I don't think these two are going to make it. And that actually just kind of breaks us 
Yeah, like, do you know what? I don't think Phil's very engaged with what Jeremy says. <laughs> like, where, what, what, what could we do with that? It'd be so hard to overlook that. Uh, I'll just, I'll go for one more here from Crocklin because it, uh, sorry, Crockin, it raises another interesting point. Uh, great episode, both. I've desperately wanted to play SS2 for about 15 years now and have made three separate attempts over the years. Unfortunately, it makes me feel extremely motion sick. Anybody have any good suggestions on what I can do to remedy this? I believe I've tried messing with Field of View before uh, in the past, but maybe not properly enough. Um, and mm. yeah, I I also uh, find I, I'm susceptible to this with older games. I think because the frame rates tend to be a bit lower and the FOV on a like a square four by three aspect ratio is much um, closer, much narrower um, and... Yeah, it sucks. I think uh, I used to get that quite a lot when I was a kid and first getting used to like staring at a screen from a few inches away. Um, and Jeremy, you've written something about this, which you linked uh, in the in the Discord. Yeah, yeah, I wrote something for VG247, kind of speaking to an expert on um, on motion sickness in, in games and whatnot. And yeah, I've definitely suffered from, from this as a lover of first-person shooters, but like... More, more so in my adulthood, strangely. But yeah, Half Life, which we'll come to later in this series, was a big, Ooh, a big one for me. I think that's FOV related. Um, but yeah, I spoke to this guy, and um, you know, he told me that a lot of it's to do with the the speed of things passing in your peripheral vision. You know, and that's how how your body measures speed. And, yeah. Uh, and the kind of disparity between that going on on the screen and your body obviously being static. So your brain's getting two different feeds and they don't match. Um, and so your brain registers that as something weird's going on. You've probably been poisoned by a weird berry. Yeah. Uh, yep. Therefore, you need to feel sick to throw it up. So the, the nausea is, in fact, like a, a defense mechanism from your body. That unfortunately you can't turn off. You can't tell it that you're actually just exploring Black Mesa and that you're not dying. Um, but yeah, fascinating. fascinating. You win again, Good biology. Point. Frustrating. Yeah, clever, clever bodies. They're always one step ahead, aren't they? Whatever we want to do. Yeah. I get I get really sick in VR and that's just not going away. You know, people talk about getting your sea legs in VR. Mm. Got quite a few hours in it now, and I just oh, whatever the I've experimented with different different like movement styles. I think the only way to do it would be if I had a massive like gymnasium to run around in so that I didn't have to ever like jerk around, you know, teleporting or or moving as you would normally move in a game just by sort of sliding along without physically walking forward. The 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 only thing that doesn't make me sick is is actually walking forward so that my brain isn't getting those mixed messages. But that's a different for you when um when your workplace moves to Zuckerberg virtual office space and you're throwing up during presentations and oh, we started on the metaverse don't yeah. get me started on it um, they might have brought legs to the metaverse but you'll still be legless we... <laughs> um so yes thank you again for for all your your kind words on that it means uh means genuinely loads to us um so thank you uh and also of course thank you to our podcast parents samuel and matthew for uh for allowing us to do this so last episode, we talked a little bit about how, who we are, um, 
But I think it'd be nice, Jeremy, to tie things up into a bow for the listeners and explain how what's our connection to, to Samuel and Matthew. So perhaps uh, you would like to start us off. How do you know these two giant men of games journalism? Hmm. Well, I knew I knew Samuel first, and obviously Backpage listeners will be aware that um, he was uh, editor-in-chief of PC Gamer and before that of the, of the magazine, and that all kind of ran parallel to my... Um, my modest rise in games journalism and I have a distinct memory of um, being at E3 for the first time bumping into Samuel and him saying oh Jeremy Peel you're, you're the person I'd uh, most like to poach from PC Games N and, oh, uh, <laughs> that's nice. that, that was the first time that someone outside of my immediate uh, team had you know a peer had said Hey, your stuff's good. Yeah, and uh, yeah. that had quietly profound impact on me. I think, mm. you know, to go, oh, you know, other people might notice what I'm doing, and um, yeah, I mean, they I like think it. that was the first comment that kind of like eventually gave me the confidence to sort of go freelance and know that there would be places out there that wanted my work. And and sure enough, when I did, Samuel was like the first biggest uh backer of me you know immediately told the pc gamer team to kind of commission me for stuff and um yeah i've written a, a lot for them ever since and um yeah that's lovely, lovely i didn't know that but uh, that is characteristic of samuel yeah that's a lovely little story yeah um, matthew matthew i've had um I've, I've spent less time with i haven't had the pleasure of uh meeting him so often but um I know him him more vicariously through uh, the podcast. I I have more of a sort of uh, parasocial relationship with Matthew, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) But I I greatly respect him as a fellow um, freelancer. You know, we both write for Edge and we both have similar kind of sensibilities and and kind of standards in writing. And you sort of recognise those people, don't you, when you working and, and keep track of what they're, they're doing and what what they're saying so yeah full of yourself similar standards in writing <laughs> no I, <laughs> I would i would agree there um i know them both from uh from my days in future publishing uh many years ago Ma- matthew would have been there uh, probably as editor at endgamer when i uh when i joined and was on was a staff writer on opm we had um what you would do when review code came in on that floor all the magazines were sort of spread out on one floor and there was like the demo room Mm. which was this uh, sort of glass fronted meeting room with all the debug consoles in there and you would just sort of sequester yourself off in the demo room those were the best days because you would just be eight out a full working day just sat in a room on your own playing a game making notes and it was just delicious and one day i was in there playing i don't know some like ninja gaiden yaiba thingy or other um i think it was ninja gaiden z that really really difficult um and substandard uh tecmo (laughs) koei um ps3 release and uh, matthew was in there like uh on the on the debug wii and like that would happen sometimes and you'd get um you'd get a little bit of a chat going about what you're reviewing but i just remember him actually being super engaged with whatever this game was and really taking like 
um, taking the time to explain it and what he liked about it. And I just got like a sort of in-person mini review um, about this fairly obscure JRPG from Matthew. <laughs> and I like his his passion and like commitment to the cause really came across. And um, and that was, yeah, that was uh, lovely. We shared a nice little moment, which he probably doesn't remember um, <laughs> because he was a, a very like, established and experienced editor at that point. Um, and Samuel, when he joined uh, Future, he was like the the young hotshot in town. He came with like a real reputation. Like I'm pretty sure Samuel's only about 24 now. So when he mm. like when he joined <clears throat> um, PC Gamer and quickly became editor, I think he might have even come in as editor. He was super young. He might have been the youngest that they'd ever had. And it was like, who's this hot young <laughs> young kid in town who's who's mixing it all up? And, uh, yeah, I think we went on a few press trips here and there. And I just had a sense of this, like, incredibly capable, prodigious man who'd, like, yeah, uh, wise wise beyond his years. And uh, I remember a particular incident where, uh, like, one of his staff writers was just, like, I was chatting with him round, round the corner from where Samuel and the team were sitting. And the staff writer was just, like, wobbling a wobble board, like a bit of cardboard as he was talking, for like, but for about 10 minutes. And Samuel just like effortlessly came over and almost like a Jedi mind trick. He was just like, stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> or he might be like, you need to stop that. You know, and it wasn't like, it wasn't angry. It wasn't out of line, but it, the wobbling stopped. <laughs> and the staff writer just sat down at his desk and got on with his work. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I understand why this... This young editor's come in and shaking things up at PC Gamer. So that's my experiences with those two, uh, nice. in case anybody's interested. I'm sure Samuel appreciate being described as a hot young kid with authority. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's how we know them. Um, let's let's move on. <laughs> so great. Let's <laughs> let's finally start talking about Blade Runner in a minute. Uh, but let's let's stretch our legs first. Um, listen to some ambient vangelis like synths and uh and then we'll get into the 1997 point and click adventure game from westwood blade runner Right, uh, I've made another cup of tea. We've listened to some Vangelis. Uh, and now it's finally time to talk about Blade Runner, the 1997 point and click, some would say classic. Um, Jeremy, what are your recollections about how this hit the industry and, and how did you first become aware of this game? Mm, I wasn't aware of it until a few years later. Um, I was into my Westwood stuff, you know, I played Command and Conquer, yeah. Red Alert, Tiberian Sun. Um, but I distinctly remember uh, seeing Blade Runner listed among PC gamers' best games list. Yeah, you know, right at the back That's of so the much mag. to answer for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They still do that, but now it's um, now it's a kind of like personalized list from a writer each time. If I'm if I'm right, I think it still runs that way. You know, I got to yeah. do one once during my. Uh, two week freelance stint as a deputy editor on the mag once 
Um, and you know, it's it's a cool, it's a good way to do it. You know, you get a variety of different tastes feeding mm. into that. But you know, in the nineties and early noughties, magazines were all about building those definitive lists, weren't they? You know, um, whether that was Q magazine voting Oasis into the top five of um, and the Stone Roses of uh, uh, the best albums ever made. They'd do that every month. And um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, PCG, they would have this list of like, well, these are the best PC games. You know, full I stop. I think that's actually, yeah, really... Um significant shift in the tone of of games coverage in general right like yeah the 90s and 2000s was all about being definitive yeah and you know the the mag voice saying like listen if you're not playing this game like you're absolute fucking loser (laughs) and you're not part of our club um and these are like the the 100 greatest games or 50 you know whatever it is and yeah now it's completely changed and it's yeah it's about like bringing different voices in to say, actually, these are the games that I really like for very personal reasons. And then, yeah, as you say, next month, a totally different selection of games so that you get an even broader landscape and nobody's trying to you know, profess to ultimate wisdom on it. I'm not sure which I prefer. I think both have got their merits. Um, yeah, as you know, there's, it was probably more exclusionary back in the in that time. I mean, it definitely was. But there was also something yeah, the, about... Yeah, particularly the way I phrased it. <laughs> <laughs> something yeah. about kind of being in the, the gang of a mag and you know the kind of authoritative tone it felt like kind of adopting an identity um and yeah pc gamer they would have this um i'm trying to think what would have been in there at the time probably we would have had um quite had half-life 2 by the point i was reading it Um, what year are we talking like 2002 three yeah yeah about then what would have been in there I I still think they would have been making the case for Half Life One as the greatest game ever in the early two thousands. Maybe, maybe. Like maybe maybe they're like, oh, actually, no, it'd be Wow, wouldn't it? It'd be Wow as soon as Wow hit. Yeah. So that it was definitely like it was recent games, you know, that were kind of um, leading the pack there. But I do remember that there was this, you know, mid to late nineties adventure game still mm. punching up there with the rest, and that was Blade Runner. Um, that was still kind of beloved at the time, five or six years on, and hadn't been supplanted by anything. So that made an impression seeing that there. You know, I trusted PC Gamer's opinion on these things and so kind of noted that this was a special game. Um, yeah, 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 this is it. Like, unless it uh, unless it came back on sold out or one of those sort of reissue labels yeah, um, in shops, it, it, was, it was pretty difficult to... Um, to track down these slightly older games that were like four or five years after the fact. I think adventure games just move at a slightly different pace, don't they? That's, that's probably always been the case. Other than in that real heyday, the early 90s, like the the adventure game, like ultimate pick in any games mag probably was two or three years old. Like the longest journey was the best adventure game for probably seven years. Yeah. As far as all the games mags are concerned. Yeah, it's that's just, true. It's just one of those genres, isn't it? Um Certainly, it just like, moves at a, a speed of its own. Yeah, and Blade Runner came right at the end of that heyday, arguably just beyond it. You know, Full Throttle had been a couple of years earlier, which, unless I'm mistaken, was kind of the last big smash hit for um, the adventure genre. Can you think of any others? 
No, I think I think you're right. This is coming just at the awkward stage where technology is allowing adventure games to do something more than like the Scum Engine tried and tested formula, but nobody was really sure how to do it. And so obviously LucasArts went with went with Curse, um, and you know which was like really poorly received at the time, and has subsequently become um, some some reckon it's the best um, of of the Monkey Islands. But yeah, they were trying to do something different. It was on 48 different CDs of, you know, glorious sort of 2D animation. And and Blade Runner takes a, a different approach to what can we do with this extra firepower in PCs now? But yeah, it was it was growing pains at this point. And I think the fact that there wasn't a unified approach to making a a good adventure game to a higher technological standard meant that it started to lose ground to things like shooters that were being iterated upon at a much faster rate and yeah. things like RTS games as well. And then the the rise of isometric RPGs yeah, just meant that these this genre got slightly sidelined. It was just trickier to figure out. Like fundamentally, you play a point-and-click adventure game the same way you play Windows. It's really, it's super intuitive, right? Like yeah. you have a sense of these are the things that I need to click on in order to further this experience just the same way as like hitting start and like you know getting to the whatever it was in, in windows like into microsoft paint and doing some graffiti or like a wavetable or midi program and just listening to some midi files it's really intuitive and that was probably a big part of the appeal and what was driving a lot of the sales and a lot of the popularity of the genre earlier in the 90s and then as soon as people had become slightly better versed in gaming in general on home computers uh that that changed the proposition i think for for adventure games and like it wasn't they they needed something more than just sheer accessibility um, yeah and i should say as well like i'm talking about accessibility even though those games are like absolutely befuddling in their puzzle logic but like <laughs> at least you know how you don't need to know a control scheme and there's no problems with like um you know, elsewhere in other genres, there hadn't really been unified control schemes yet. And you might want to play certain, you, know, you might want to play Descent with a joystick. You might play some racing games with a joystick and not others. Point and clicks, you just need a bloody ball mouse and 45 minutes to figure out which items to combine. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. I think there's a, an argument to be made that Blade Runner is this kind of smartest application of. Um, you know, the kind of 3D tech at the time in an adventure game. Mm. It didn't throw out, you know, you're still working with essentially 2D backgrounds in the way you play them. It's still those kind of lovely vistas, but it's also a very kind of technically innovative game. There's a lot of work with um, shadows and lighting and fog and all these very kind of things that were being enabled by early 3d tech uh, a lot of motion capture in blade runner it's it, yeah incredibly smart yeah we have we have names for all the things that they were doing uh in game tech in that game now but at the time it was it was they were building them from scratch in their own engine and applying them you know with a very specific goal of capturing the atmosphere of a ridley scott film from the 80s yeah no no small order but yeah it's i think you're absolutely right it's it's so so smart about how it uses its tech. We'll dig into a bit more about that um, 
uh, some of the techniques involved in order to achieve the look and how how kind it was on systems at the time. Like, it doesn't mm. require a three D accelerator. Yeah, um, which is which is uh, quite an achievement. Um, this one, um, I I got my first PC after this game came out. However, that PC came with this like glorious little um, tray of uh, of titles bundled with it. And mm. among them all was Blade Runner. This was the first adventure game I ever played as a result. So there was like, what else was in that that little disc tray? There was like Redline Racer, Ultimate Race Pro, Total Annihilation, Fallout, uh, probably something, Actual Soccer 2, and then Blade Runner. And Not I bad. had no sense. Yeah, it was amazing. I had no sense at the time that Blade Runner was, um, I probably knew that it was a film, but I hadn't seen the film. To me, it was just like um, the 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 universe was basically whole cloth. Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> my as I was playing it, it was like yeah, the game had come up with this. I was like, wow, this, this is all right. I've thought about this world. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that there was a, a film and a book and a you know an entire sort of language of of cyberpunk um, built around yeah. it. That they have were you seen Ridley on. Scott's adaptation of Westwood's Blade Runner. <laughs> That's exactly how it felt when I when I finally watched Blade Runner. Um, Years later, what do you mean you've never seen Blade Runner? Um, I, yeah, it was it was mad. I was like, this this film adaptation of a game is like so spot on. It's unreal. They've used some of the same noises as the game. I didn't even realize the game was so popular. And then, of course, clicked that I was watching a, a film from 1982. Yeah, um, I, I didn't see Blade Runner until my late teens, and it was right. Uh, Foolishly, I accepted at the time that the final cut was the final cut. You know, the oh no, was it the director's cut that came first? I forget. Oh yeah, right. I watched the second to last cut, which was the um, you know, the most modern at the time, which is the one that comes mm. without uh, Harrison Ford's bored uh, narration, noirish but bored. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was my first experience with Blade Runner. Yeah, I, I I was many years later, and yeah, it, it was it was a revelation. I think I did know that the film predated the um, the game, but I didn't know how close how closely the two played together. Um, and yeah, once I like you, once I started re- reading PC Gamer, certainly in like ninety eight ninety nine, they were still banging on about Blade Runner being this amazing point and click game. So yeah, that sort of like that um, enriched my respect for this game that I was struggling with because um, <laughs> I didn't understand any genre conventions. I don't remember the Edge or PC Gamer score. I think generally the critical reception was pretty positive to this. Yeah. Um, if I were to hazard a guess in PC Gamer, I would say high 80s. Mm. Mm. I mean, it sold well as well, I believe. Like I, I gather that it was a, a slightly ludicrous investment in that they spent more on it than adventure games at the time typically made back so just to break even they had to like they had to do better than the the rest of the genre was doing um, yeah right yeah but it, it did succeed so i big, guess they, big they swing. pinned a lot yeah they must have pinned a lot on the blade runner name um yeah i think i i read that it outsold curse of monkey islands like three copies to one wow so that is probably the the blade runner um, name doing some of the heavy lifting there. Yeah, although, although it, it is a fantastic game in its own right. It is. It's it's strange to realise that 
um, you know, Blade Runner was what eighty two, and this game it, so. came out in ninety seven. Um, yeah. So effectively, it, it was ancient history already. You know, those mm, obviously mm. we're kind of at the we're at the fortieth anniversary of of Blade Runner now, but yeah. um, it's it's akin to somebody making a Blade Runner game now. It's not. Uh, there was no sort of, um, if not within the natural window of a movie tie-in. No, uh, not at all. No, it'd be like if Westwood had made the Wild Wild West point-and-click adventure game, then that would be <laughs> contemporaneous. Yeah. Um, and really in some ways, sense. it's it's a shame that we don't live in that universe. But um, yeah, I, 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 the, probably the modern parallel is the um, the Avatar game coming out. I mean, obviously there are yeah, new yeah. Avatar movies about to hit, but currently... It's a similar proposition. Avatar came out, what, 2009? The game's coming out at some point in 2023. I say, yeah, Uh, I don't know. The franchise has been dormant all that time. Um, It doesn't quite line up in terms of the the years. But yeah, yeah, it's a strange one. I wonder wonder whether uh, Blade Runner was quite the cult classic. In in the late nineties, I gather that, that it's yeah, the, become now. the the re-releases, the new cuts, really sort of um, built its reputation mm. uh, to where it is now. Um, and you know, early on, it was more of a kind of word of mouth um, success. But yeah, yeah. It, I suppose the advantage of of making a game in that way is there are no, there was no um, uh, box office date that. Uh, that Westwood had, had to, to hit. hit. It all <laughs> happened. It all happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was uh, a pretty difficult one to put together because of that license, right? Like, I was trying to get my head around how this happened, and there was a sort of a legal entity called Blade Runner Collective who owned some of the rights to some of the bits. Yeah. Um, but then some of the movie studios and Ridley Scott owned some of the other bits. So I don't think... When Westwood got this deal... Uh, with with Virgin, uh, when they brokered that, yes, they could make a licensed Blade Runner game set in the universe using the name, they couldn't have um, any of the official like dialogue from the movie, I don't think. There were certain restrictions, and it just... Because the rights holders were like seven different companies at this point, um, and because it had been so long ago, you know, it was difficult to even figure out who owned the rights to what. Uh, that it was that that sounded like one of the more difficult aspects of even getting this game made, but like hats off to Westwood for doing it, because not only did they manage to bring it to market, but like they did it in extraordinary fashion and with a lot of um, like licensing impositions, created something that is like absolutely part of that universe and just feels like a totally authentic companion piece and particularly if you played it before you saw Blade Runner it feels just every bit as authentic and valuable um, a, a contribution to the the cyberpunk canon yeah I think at the time that that Blade Runner entity you talked about um, a sort of you know licensing entity must mm. have uh, had a game in mind um, or, or wanted something of that nature because uh there was some kind of, you know, EA were in talks with them at the time yeah. as well, apparently. And um, but Westwood won them over with, you know, they had a kind of clear um, goal in mind. They, um, Lewis Castle, I believe his name is a Westwood co-founder who 
Yeah. He was creative director, art director, and technical director on this game. Um, <laughs> he had a very, All the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had a very sort of specific um, vision for what this game should be and how it would capture the, the tone of the film. And obviously that that resonated and they, they made the right choice there. Um, despite the fact that, you know, Westwood were not known as a as an adventure game studio at the time. No, yeah, let's talk about that, actually. Yeah, Westwood were obviously the Command & Conquer guys, and I, I think from memory, the first Command & Conquer was 95. Red Alert would have been 97, I think. And then just in tandem, here's this, oh, here's this brilliant um, adventure game. Like, the, like, absolutely at the forefront of defining what an RTS is and, like, uh, designing things like the, you know, the fog of war and just elements of the visual language of RTS games that we take for granted now that somebody actually had to sit there and think about and yeah. design. Pathfinding was a big deal at the time. They'd yeah. done all that kind of technical work. A modern studio, having made that kind of uh, creative investment in something, they would they would struggle to justify a, you know an about turn like that. You know, let's let's completely start from scratch in a different genre with a with a new engine and whatnot. Um, the, the 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 equivalent I was thinking of in in modern times is maybe uh, like playground games doing Fable. Yeah, that's a obviously good one. playground are the Forza Horizon um, studio, very uh, acclaimed, celebrated, like sort of arcade open world racing game entity, and now they're taking on Fable. Um, it sort of makes sense to me somehow. <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't seem that much of a stretch. I feel like that's that's probably in good hands, and they'll make a good game there, but. That's about as extreme um, a right turn as as a studio tends to make in the modern era. I can't think of any more extreme examples of that, can you? No, not off the top of my head. Yeah, AAA studios tended to... I mean, it was was more common in the 90s to kind of... um, uh, to switch things up in that way, and teams are smaller, and, um, you know, we'll come to this when when we get to Quake. You know, Quake was originally going to be this weird sort of hybrid like side on fighting game and various other influences but i didn't know that you know oh man well we'll get to that yeah but like it yeah. you know it kind of it, it ended up settling into what they'd already learned from doom and then became a first person shooter studio um which is what its software is today and that's how AAA studios generally function they they have a speciality and they stick to it um at the time i guess it was more common to kind of jump between different things um but still you know it, it wasn't where westwood was building its reputation and arguably quite a strange uh way to start funneling all their uh all their money and resources i've just had to have a look about that red alert year that i slapped on it well i was a year out so red alert was 96 oh. so they brought command and conquer out in 95 and then a year later they'd managed to make red alert like I've got, I'm I'm growing exponentially in respect for Westwood. Like this is <laughs> what a '90s they had. I think the maybe the um, the only through line to draw, like in in how Blade Runner happened, is that they could handle an official license. Like Westwood before they started faffing around with RTS games, did a lot of those Disney platformers. Yeah, like the the Lion King platformer, and did they do that really hard Donald Duck? <laughs> platform maybe they didn't it was a super hard one it got remastered in like the about 2011 2012 um 
I can't remember. But but yeah, they 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 knew their way around a movie license as best as anybody did in the late eighties, early nineties, right? You just turn it into a platformer. But I guess they would have been a trusted entity with it. Yeah, they knew they were around movies as well. Of course, like Command and Conquer with its uh, FMV cutscenes. Like Westwood were an early adopter of CD-ROM. They figured out how to like compress video in this way. And uh, do you want to know a fun link between CNC and this game? Uh, Please. Kane, the actor of uh, yeah. who plays Kane, Joe Kukin. Uh, also directed the cutscenes in the Command and Conquer games, and directed oh. the uh, the voice performances in Blade Runner. So, no way! Uh, yeah. I didn't realise that. So is it's it's Kane's fault that we have that incredible Tim Curry like, space space. <laughs> I don't know if he was still involved. He would have been that directing stage. that scene, perhaps. Oh, really? Okay. But like all, all well, of that sort of like absurd um, straight to camera mission briefing stuff. Yeah, and. Uh, and high sci-fi drama that was that was him yeah it's, it sort of makes sense doesn't it like yeah that um that fmv based storytelling and then the like the animated sprites as well although i think they work totally differently the um the character models in blade runner are like they sort of look like zoomed in soldiers from command and conquer yeah i think to modernize but they're working in a really different way i think uh like in command and conquer they are just really simple little animated sprites in blade runner they're like they're 3d um voxel based like entities yeah about seven hundred and fifty thousand polygons um in those uh in those character models um that sounds like a and, lot but it's all it's all yeah it's all voxels um, so that's why they didn't. You didn't need a three D accelerator um, to run it. It's it's voxel rather than like polygonal. Um, I'm I'm in over my head. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I've gone too far into the technicalities. I don't understand voxels. I always it's like Minecraft. Isn't I, it? I've I've always heard that voxels are, are less system intensive. So let's just leave it there. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just fucking clever, isn't it? Like. They they had a vision for what they wanted to look like, and then they also had the technical mastery to realise that vision in, in, in a way that could hit like the average PC, and people you know people could access it, and it didn't run at three frames a second. Yeah, so it's just terribly impressive. And also shout out, it's time for Phil Butcher's a composer's name. Uh, last last episode it was Terry Brosius, Eric Terry Brosius, <laughs> Eric Brosius. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and this week it's Frank uh, Klepaski. Klepaski? Klepaski. He was a composer from Command and Conquer who did that incredible, like, the industrial metal soundtrack in Red Alert. Oh, yeah. The one that begins with, like, a. Hell, is that the Hell March? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He composed that. But he also Beautiful. composed the score here in Blade Runner, which sounds to me, and we'll get into this uh, deeper into the podcast, but. Like it sounds like just the score from Blade Runner, mm. but uh, they they didn't have access to that; they couldn't use it. Um, so Terry Klepetsky, aka Frank Klepetsky, <laughs> his real name, um, sort of did it all from scratch. He re-recorded elements of the original soundtrack verbatim, and then sort of deconstructed it, and then used elements of that in in the Blade Runner game soundtrack. So they. They just really knew what they were doing. Amazing. And somehow this was a year after Red Alert. I don't understand how they pulled it off. Um, Fascinating to talk to Lewis Castle about it. Yeah. 
returning to the film, I did notice like specific um, sort of ambient sound that you get in the game is there in the in the film or, or very close to it. There's um in Harrison Ford's apartment. There's a sort of background noise that happens. And I was like, That's it. I've been hearing <laughs> that go? for hours. Because <laughs> loop that. You got it. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's part of the Jeremy Peel soundboard now. Yeah. And uh, it's it's such a specific um, atmosphere to to Blade Runner and they wouldn't have been able to capture it without the, the you know, the tech they built for it. Like so much of the look of that film comes from those kind of very powerful spotlights and the, you know, often cast through like spinning fans or there's often some kind of motion involved with the shadows and to kind of have those looping in a game at that time is a very very big deal and i think if if westwood hadn't gone to that trouble of making that work then it wouldn't feel authentically blade runner in the way it does i absolutely agree i think the strongest asset that it has going for it is how well it captures uh the the ambience and the atmosphere and part of that is in the sound but yeah it's it's, it's the ambient lighting as well and the way that you're looking at pre-rendered backgrounds, but as you transition between them sometimes, you're not just going to a hard cut and then being presented with the next screen. The camera moves with you and you get a small video, basically, that's transitioning the angle of the pre-rendered background. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and that adds a lot to the sense of being in, in a place and, and uh, seeing it from a different angle. It's very smart. Yeah, and you get... um. NPCs kind of moving in and out of the scene, don't you? Just when you're standing in the street, you'll get um, sort of nameless characters just just passing through from from A to B. Yeah, you can click on them and go, "Hey, police!" and they'll blank you. But uh, yeah, <laughs> they, yeah, they, there's there's one really cool like uh, punk looking guy. He's like a really tall '70s London punk in a leather jacket and a mohawk and I always wanted to talk to him but uh, <laughs> never was never interested Jeremy no. um oh god what was I going to say there's something else about the technical aspects that I wanted to say before we moved on I'd read something impressive and smart that I wanted to put in <laughs> what was it I think it's probably about the gro- oh no it's the AI oh yeah let me tell you about the AI as These well two. um it's absolutely nuts how it works in this game basically they by the sounds of it, they every AI entity, they designed them with behaviours, but not like waypoints and routines. So the the AI is like uh, acting on objectives that it knows it needs to meet, um, and so it's sort of semi randomised, mm. which in a point and click adventure game is like pretty baffling quite a baffling decision and there are certain things right from the start of the game that uh, are already sort of predetermined will or won't happen in your playthrough just sort of random variables about where characters will be and how they might behave Mm. um but yeah everybody you know like i'm trying to think of examples but there will yeah there will be some one of the components in this game is is uh like zooming in zooming and enhancing on photographs that you've taken and the elements in those photographs will change depending on what the AI has been up to while you were really uh, in that scene. Yeah, so you, like you might get a photo of a person to zoom and enhance, or it might be like the scale of an animal instead, depending on what's been going on. It sounds a little bit like um, how Deadly Premonition works. You know, everybody, all the all the 
inhabitants of that town, they have quite rich interior lives and they've got things that they need to accomplish on a sort of 24 hour cycle. So you'll find them like hanging out at the the diner or driving from hither to thither. Um, And it sounds like a sort of 1997 version of that, that each AI character has certain tasks to accomplish and they will do it sort of according to their own whims. Yeah. Uh, I did read that like certain characters can be human or replicant on different playthroughs and that'll be determined beforehand. And you you know, as a player you may or may not discover that about a given character. That's super clever as well. This is nineteen ninety seven. Yeah. That's amazing. I love that. Um well, we'll yeah. I mean, we we'll, we both have replayed this um, very recently, and we'll get into like how those those two playthroughs uh, diverged um, a little bit later on. But that's that's quite the nugget. I didn't realize that, and this is probably my third time playing through now. Mm. I think there's probably just been enough years in between that I've always forgotten who's a rep and who's human. Amazing stuff. Anyway, my tea my tea is uh, getting towards the bottom of the mug. So shall we uh, take a little break and? When we reconvene, we'll get into the second episode of Review Wars. Um, and then we'll get into Phil and Jeremy Remember, which is where we uh, contrast our original experiences of Blade Runner with our uh, our contemporary playthrough of the game. So should we uh, have a little break, Jeremy, get back to it? Mm, let's do it. Let's let's pick back up. Um, let's we might as well get straight into review wars. Um, get it over and done with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are coming to this episode new and you're not familiar with the concept, this is where myself and Jeremy sort of try to outdo each other. We imagine we've been commissioned to write the review of this game in situ in the '90s for one of the big games mags. So we write a lovely sort of indulgent intro paragraph, but we also do it with a little bit of sound design because this is an audio medium and um the winner gets the spoils the loser is ritually humiliated yeah and their name is dragged through the the mud um speaking and of winners, shall we uh sure sure i uh i wouldn't i won the vote on uh system shock 2 review was which is um, and i'm fine with that yeah i mean as it- i've mentioned i'm absolutely fine with that yeah yeah i mean you've only had many years of experience in production and uh and voice recording as I'm sort of floundering yeah. and uh, yeah, 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 yeah. looking around, yeah. leaning on a uh, single <laughs> module of music tech in, at uni in, in 2009. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, sure. it's, it's unjust. It's unjust. I will acknowledge. <laughs> no, I, no, do you know what? Like, let's, let's be real. Yours had content in it. Yours told you about the game. It could actually function as an intro paragraph 
in a review, whereas mine would be very strange, I think. For well. I, I went with it. I went with the low hanging fruit. I did a showdown impression, um, and I was talking to the player in the voice of Shodan and suggesting that they weren't clever enough to play this game because it was a genre hybrid and that was a big deal in 1999. Yeah, to think you went with the you went with a surefire method of insulting the reader and that didn't pay off for you. <laughs> Maybe that's what it was. <laughs> um, so this is a something of a grudge match already two episodes in. Um, we'll we'll play through our respective song wars and yeah, we'll uh, there'll be a vote um, that uh, that we'll put up and um, vote for your favourite. You know, vote with your vote. Is it a head decision or a heart decision? I think it's going to be. It's a heart pick, isn't it? The review was. I think so. I don't think we're going to be. Um, are people are choosing. I don't that think way. people are voting on the qualities of the um, the fade outs and the um, the looping, are they? Yeah, which 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 is really those are the margins that I need to exploit <laughs> in order to stand any chance. Um, all right, well, let's get into it then. So, uh, Jeremy, do you want to do you want to begin with yours this time, or shall I take the lead? Um, I think you should go first this time. Okay, my great fear this week is that we've done the exact same thing. Yeah, I'm worried. But you've about just that. done yours <laughs> slightly more thoughtfully, <laughs> and then like whoever goes second, it's like, oh yeah, it's like having to follow like a brilliant like stand-up set and your all your jokes are about the same thing oh, but yeah. they're like four out of ten oh, versions anyway so am i going first yes okay uh what can i say about this one um i think it speaks for itself let's just get into it all right all right you know i already did one of these uh, iq tests earlier this year well i say that it was which friend's character are you? reaction time is a factor in this so please pay attention 118 Artley Road. Yeah, that's where I used to live. What, is this part of the test? No, just warming you up. You place a DVD into your disk drive. An adventure game appears. I mean, is that a question? I'd, I'd play the game, obviously. It seamlessly immerses you into a cyberpunk future where replicants masquerade as humans. You're part of the Rep Detect police force sent to hunt them down. One of them just massacred some animals downtown at Runciter's. Yeah, sounds alright so far. I'd, uh, I'd keep playing. After a long day gathering evidence, you return home to your apartment. Your dog, Maggie, is waiting for you there. I would click on Maggie over and over again and give her loads of treats even if there was actually just only one line of dialogue to, to cover that interaction. Yeah. The investigation's heating up. You've picked up a lot of clues, and you need to track down your next witness. Um, I'll probably just look at all the available locations and just keep spamming them until I see someone new. During a routine questioning, a chef throws a giant cauldron at you and makes a run for it. Yeah, not the first time that's happened, actually, in a, in a point-and-click adventure game to me. Um, I get my gun and, and tail the perp. Tail the perp. Can I pull that off? It's the fourth act now. More dead bodies. And that's closing in on your suspects. But it's closing in on you, too. Ooh, I... Uh, all right, I wouldn't look up a walkthrough, but obviously I want to get the good ending, so... But like, but I definitely wouldn't look up a walkthrough. Look, I'm not, I'm not a goddamn cheater, all right. Look, I'm done with this test, Mr. Ravenic. Please calm down. I tell you what, I'd do. 
Uh, that was brilliant. It'd be it'd be strange to see that in print, wouldn't it? I, I you know, I've <laughs> what I've done there is that I've I've imagined the Voight Camp test. I've completely disregarded the idea that this is part of a like the opening paragraph of a review. Yeah, how would you express um, uh, the writer kills the interviewer in uh, in prose? <laughs> I don't know. It'd just be bang in asterisks. I think yeah. you just have to infer. I don't think it, it, it. I mean, that would be subbed out straight away any any editor with this song be like phil mate come on oh man <laughs> tell me about the game so you know how you you mentioned the possibility that we might have done the exact same thing <laughs> and that one of us would go first and it'd be slightly better oh christ oh no <laughs> in the in the the discord listeners pointed out you know there's a few possibilities like the kind of the, yeah. the low-hanging fruit of this there's there's um you could do a tears in rain rutger hauer speech yes it, it did cross my mind that one yeah you could do a bored harrison ford um narration yeah uh, of course you could mm-hmm. do the voight kampf test which is the most tempting <laughs> choice and i knew there was a real real possibility we both have done it and that is what has happened <laughs> So, oh, uh, it's such a direct head-to-head. Oh, let's, let's play it, I guess, eh? <laughs> okay, right, this is Jeremy's Review Wars. Come in. Oh, hi, <laughs> nice to meet you, Doctor. Are you a doc? Sit down. Sorry. Now, I'm going to ask you some questions. I'd like you to answer as quickly as you can. Of course, anything I can do to help. You're in Game Station, walking along the aisles, when all of a sudden, the Game Station closed down. It's a hypothetical. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Walking along the aisles, you see a stand, advertising the new Blade Runner game. The box bears the logo of Westwood Studios, the makers of the Command and Conquer series. Oh, so it's an RTS, like June. It's a point-and-click adventure game. How does that make you feel? Uh, nervous, I guess. I hope they know what they're doing. Mind you, cutscenes in Red Alert were really good. You play a Blade Runner, like Deckard, but you're not Deckard. Instead, your life runs in parallel to his. You wander the same streets, investigate some of the same scenes, but you never cross paths. It's lonely. One time, you catch a glimpse of Harrison Ford in the background. Oh, cool. Does he do the voice? No. Uh, yeah. Don't know why I thought he would, to be honest. Reaction time is a factor in this, so please pay attention. Oh, alright. Yeah, Christ. There are no puzzles in this adventure game. Instead, you track down leads on your cases. But eventually, even those unravel as you begin to question your career very identity. Huh. That's weird, but I like it. Sounds like the arc of a film noir detective. Is it like a femme fatale type character? Yes. She's 14 years old. What the fuck? The test is designed to provoke an emotional response. <laughs> Clearly. Whether or not you run away with a 14 year old girl is determined by the choices you make in the game. There are four possible endings. But those choices aren't made clear to you. In fact, you often won't be aware you're making them at all. 
Wow. Sounds like a really strange and unique game. I think I'm going to play it. It's a hypothetical. Oh, right, yeah. It's a shame video games were destroyed during the Third Terran War. Describe in single words only the good things that come into your mind about your mother. My mother? Let me tell you about my mother. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> well i hope you've uh hope you've enjoyed listening to about seven solid minutes of we camp test there everyone <laughs> This is the best possible thing that could have happened. What I will say is that I think yours is tons better because you very and I'm I, once again I'm furious because what you've done is like uh, very uh, subtly just come like communicated all the premise of the game, some of the like the major beats in the story. There's a feeling of like what it would it, you know what it'd be like to play. There's some value judgments there. It does feel like a review, whereas I thought like brilliant void camp i'll just do that and you know that <laughs> the premise will carry it along i don't need to think much about what i'm what i'm writing i'll do a funny voice and then i'll do the other one as me and then it'll be brilliant um, <laughs> well let, let me tell you, give you two points in your favor uh one the reverb i'm quite annoyed that i didn't uh, put that in. i felt like i was listening to the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy with yours it was great uh, two, the accent, which I really struggled with, and uh, I can't do American accents. And, and even during the recording, I was like, "Can I, can I change this to an accent I can do? Could I do like a posh authoritarian British accent?" But I tried it, and it, it instantly doesn't feel like Blade Runner. Uh, so I had yeah. to make do. And I, yeah. I know I was also like <laughs> influenced by I'd just seen um, Glass Onion, the Knives Out film, the day before. And I think yeah. having just watched um, an English person do a bad American accent, I just kind of <laughs> fell into that sort of weird southern lilt that Daniel Craig does. That was the only way I could, <laughs> yeah. could find into it. So I did got... notice that you were, yeah, it was getting quite deep south. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, if oh, anyone dear. wants to go back, like when I say Harrison Ford is where it really breaks down. I just couldn't figure out how to how to get my my mouth around the vowels in there in that one. So, but as we've yeah. established, these are heart picks rather than head picks. So, although yes, my reverb is technically superior from production standpoint, I don't know that that's going to be enough to sway the vote. <laughs> to be honest, if this was if this podcast was going out to like sound on sound listeners, then perhaps, <laughs> but I think. I think I might have just lost another Song Wars. And listen, I'm absolutely fine. Yeah, with we'll that, see. As I've mentioned. Um, so yeah, we'll put the we'll put the poll up. Uh, vote vote however you like. Just know that whatever the result, I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, let's let's move on to talking about the game. I don't think we need to cover that. There's some Void Camp tests in the, in the game. I think that <laughs> aspect has been quite well um, quite well uncovered. Um, yeah, we've 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 both recently replayed this. Um, I played it on the old beige ninety eight PC upstairs on the original disc that that came with my first computer. So that was a spiritual mm. um, and and heartening experience. Um, but yes, that felt like a nice sort of uh, three sixty. Uh, how did how did you feel coming at this game, 
in 2022. Yeah. And when, when was the first time you played it? Well, I haven't played this one before. This, this is one of uh, maybe two games in our series that I'm coming completely fresh to. Uh, so I know right. this game meant a lot to you, a formative game for you. But Absolutely. I, I was, you know, way more familiar with the films uh, beforehand. And I sort of deliberately went to the other end of the spectrum in terms of you playing on a on a PC of the time, you're playing the original um, version. I went with the enhanced edition, which came out this year with a very mixed reputation. Right. The night dive. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I played it on switch. So it's, it's oh. completely uh, different environment. And um, yeah, I mean, shall I get into some of the, the technical stuff about the enhanced edition or should we come to that later? Do you reckon? No, let's, now's as good a time as any. Uh, what I will say is that I absolutely adore Night Dive Studios and any um, criticism of them I take very personally as a criticism of me <laughs> as well. But um, but no, go for it. Yeah, they've had they had a rough time with it. Um, ironically, we talked about you know uh, Blade Runner wasn't made to a to a movie deadline, um, whereas with the enhanced edition, they really wanted to get it out for the fortieth anniversary, and so. Uh, right. It maybe wasn't quite as as finished up as it could be when it came out, um, and you know, there's no one thing, no one criticism of it that really sort of stands out. It's just a lot of, a lot of small things that kind of added up to a, a pretty negative reception um, when it emerged. It's um, it's one of those remastered games where the source code is lost, so it's all kind of reverse engineered to to kind yeah. of get the best of it. Um, yeah, they apparently lost all the masters when when Westwood moved in like ninety eight or ninety nine. They moved studios. Oh sure, I just can't get my head around that. I think that happened. Didn't that happen with a double fine game as well? The Grim Grim Fandango. Yeah, and there's, they um, might have lost a bunch of original illustrations and things. Icewind Dale two as well. I think like um, yeah, the less, reason there less isn't heartbroken uh, about that one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's, I think um, you know in, in a lot of tech industries. People don't think in terms of like preservation at the time because mm. everything feels worthless a year later, and it's only ten years later you go yeah. actually hang on, we want to keep hold of that. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think they they had a real a real time with it, and um, they have patched it um, since, and I found it mostly mostly fine. Like mostly, it, it just felt like I was playing. This '90s adventure game. A couple of things that stood out as as bad issues. Um, obviously, at any point in Blade Runner, you can you can pull out your gun and shoot at things. Uh, yes, the shooting was sort of intermittently working for me. Like I'd, I could always get my gun out, but it didn't always fire when I clicked. Which is, you know, you get some pretty uh, sort of tasty encounters in this game where you really have to be quick on the draw. If you're gonna, yeah, if you're gonna yeah. come out on top, and and that's not obviously not a great <laughs> addition, uh, is a is a misfiring gun, and uh, mm. the other thing I had, which almost like led me to abandon my save, was I did a I did conduct a void camp test on a, I believe it was um, Bullet Bob, the guy who runs the gun store in um, yeah, is it Animoid Row? And um, That's, uh, I think it's DNA right. DNA right. Is that right? No, I think it's yeah. Uh, I think it's off uh, off Anamoid right. It's not on the same okay. block. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. But um, after I'd conducted this Voight Camp test, the game returned to like the scene in the shop and I couldn't click anything. Like oh, the cursor had disappeared. Nobody was speaking. And I thought, oh, this is it. It's, it's, it's screwed. Um, but I discovered on a, on a on a Reddit thread that someone had had a similar issue and they just said, I'll oh, just leave it for five minutes and it'll wake up again, which is what I did. I just left it for a couple <laughs> of minutes and then uh, a bullet bob just started, just woke up and started speaking again and I could continue with the game. And it was the only time it happened, but it was pretty, you know, pretty severe um, bug. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure I can wholeheartedly recommend uh, it as a, as a port or a new version. Well, I, I, I wonder how much of it is, um, <clears throat> how many of those issues are introduced in the remaster because it's not a perfect game on a technical level yeah. when you play the original disc as well. Like, um, it's, yeah, there's, there's some, there's definitely some jank. Like I had a moment where, uh, you know, the, oh, I can't remember his name is the guy in the fantastic red jacket. Who's got a real walk and he's, He's down like the swing club. He, t- he talks about Sinatra a lot. Uh, he kind of yeah. talks like, hey, daddy. Oh, I forget his name. Why you look so grim? Yeah, yeah, I know. He, I I went like, uh, my icon disappeared as well in DNA Row or Animoid Row, whichever one. I think there's both, right? Yeah. Um, quite near Bullet Bobs. And I was like, what's going on? I couldn't move, couldn't like do anything. I was just waiting. And it turns out that like just off screen, that man in the red jacket had like entered and I was about to talk to him, but I had to wait about a minute for him to like walk very slowly <laughs> sauntering in his smoking jacket towards me. And it's only when he popped back out from the other side of a, a like a steam vent or something. I was like, Oh, th- this is what's going on. Uh, that's why I can't do anything. Um, the shooting doesn't feel great in the original. I don't remember times when I was like definitely misfiring. There is a time, there's a moment when you uh, come across somebody, is he called Majani, who's strapped to a bomb. Oh, yeah, um, that moment. And you have to shoot the chain to to free him and then run off very quickly out of the room. Uh, yeah, the shooting was pretty haphazard. Um, like I would be shooting definitely on the chain at like 50% of the time. It would fire, but it wouldn't break the chain. And 50% of the time it would. So I had to do a lot of reloading yeah, there. Yeah, that's a Stevie so a little lyric, bit. isn't it? Something like that. <laughs> yeah. She delivers it with a bit more panache than you I did. Fire but, um... it, but you'll never break the train. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I experienced a little bit of jank. Like, I don't I don't want to just, you know, defend Night Dive for the sake of it, but I do, I do love them because they've got such a specific taste in games that seems to overlap with mine so much. It's like they're just going through my personal collection of favourites from the 90s and remastering them for yeah. me. And they do, on the whole, they have a stellar reputation for this stuff. And I, oh, I they're, in, they're incredible. For, like that. You know, they've, they've held their hands up with this and they've been, you know, interviews in which they've kind of explained the factors that kind of led to it being iffy, people coming down with COVID and this kind of thing, which, you know, I'm, I'm right. inclined to, to give them the sort of benefit of the doubt and the... You know, yeah. trust. On I mean, the the Quake remaster alone. Like we were, we've been playing through Quake and co-op. Oh and yeah, like that's, it just feels like there was Brilliant. always co-op in Quake. Yeah. Is, oh, <laughs> they're, they're so good. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, my yeah. I obviously first played it uh, back in '98 on my on my first PC. I didn't have a 
fucking clue what to do. Like it was my first experience of like getting my head around point and click logic. So yeah. what the game does really well, actually, and this only really struck me uh, when I played it now, is that there's no tutorial at all. You load up the game. There's not really even a main menu. You're just in it and you instantly know what to do. The UI is absolutely transparent. It's just a cursor that uh, that changes depend like depending on the interaction available. You can move certain places to swap scenes. You can pick certain things up. You can click on people to talk to them. That's it. It's so light touch. And then you've got like elements like the the Esper, like zoom and enhance photo machine thing. Mm. Uh, you've got the void camp test, which occurs quite rarely. That's a little bit trickier to get your head around for the, the UI of that. Um, yeah, and why you, to, you, you want to pick? I had to read like, the PDF, low of intensity the, the manual to uh, to know what all yeah. the knobs did, all the all the <laughs> yeah <laughs> meters on the uh, on the Boyd Camp test screen. Yeah, but but generally it's absolutely seamless. You just you put the game disc in your PC, and then thirty seconds later you're in the Blade Runner universe. Yeah, with so little faffing, and it never feels the need to explain itself. Nor does it ever really need to. The moments where you get stuck are just because of the puzzle logic or because of randomized elements. You need an NPC to be in a certain scene and they're not there because they've got this weird AI behavior that means they're off doing something else when you need them to be there instead. Uh, but yeah, the the fundamental design of this game, I think, is just absolutely fantastic. It's so intuitive. Yeah, I think it's much more intuitive than the average point-and-click game, actually. Because although you are kind yeah. of, you are coming environments to pick up items and you know on on a fundamental level you are combining them with with certain characters or what have you to get a result, but mm. it doesn't follow that kind of puzzle logic of oh this this is some silly um, joke solution about burning a rope with mm. a candle or what have you. It's a detective yeah, yeah. game, and so it has this very sort of rigorous. Um, logic to it and you are following leads and generally you know like if you think that you have a lead then you can take it to a character who that's relevant to and, and you'll get something usable um so yeah. yeah and like getting stuck in this game doesn't feel the same as it does in a in another point and click game because you can it feels very natural and is in your role as a blade runner to kind of like go back over environments see if you've missed any any key evidence to to look back through those um images you know do the the um zoom and enhance and, and try and find those elements where the the you know the perspective shifts and you and you see somebody's face at a bar or something and you and you're able to kind of follow that um to a to a new area or something and also the the fact that you're you're conducting the investigation that crosses over with what your 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 peers in the force are working on like there's this other character crystal who's a who's a blade runner as well right and she's working on mm. um a lot of the same cases as you and you'll see a crop up at certain um junctures not the same junctures it depends how quick you are and you know what she's doing compared to you but like you will you'll bump into each other at certain points and you can also head back to the police station sort of upload your evidence and download mm. hers as well so if she's found a lead um that she's then gone and checked in with police hq 
then that can be yours and you can use it. So there's always kind of something you can do to to shuffle things along and it feels like feels in character it doesn't feel like the game's breaking it feels like a very natural thing for you to to do as that character yeah i really enjoy that that loop as well yeah like i I did this when i first played it and i found myself doing it um most recently as well of like being out and following you know pursuing leads and things and then like popping back into the police station every evening like uploading your data seeing if the chief's there the chief's never there um, no, it's very rarely there to talk to. Um, <laughs> but like, I'd always, I'd always check, or like maybe pop down into the uh, like the jail cells and have a have a chat to whichever perps are down there. And then I'd go back home. I'd feed Maggie, like check my answer phone, and I I love that like that domestic aspect of, uh, yeah. of being a being a Blade Runner. Have like have a kip, dream about something weird, and then back to it. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's always you, nighttime, you, of course, because it's Blade Runner. You wake up and you get a phone call, and that gives you your next, um, you know, location yeah. to go to. It's it's a similar reward system to a point and click adventure in that, like, when you've done something smart, then you get to see a new environment, you get to see a beautiful new mm, background. Mm. Um, but it's it sort of follows the logic of like, um, you know, McCoy the detective. He won't go to Animoid Row until he's got a reason to go there. It's not that he doesn't know where it is. You know, he can fly there in his, <laughs> yeah. his spinner whenever he likes. But he's not <laughs> going to go until there's a lead that takes him there. And so it's quite exciting yeah. when you get something, you know, you realise that, oh, there's this um, uh, earring that one of the perps in a in a bombing is wearing and it's, it's shaped like an insect. And, and there's somebody who sells that kind of thing down in Animoid Row. And so you get to go there and you get to talk to all the shopkeepers and find all sorts of different avenues to explore that way. Yeah. We should talk about Lucy a bit, shouldn't we? Because as you correctly pointed out in your Superior Review Wars, Lucy is a 14-year-old girl who's also something of a love interest in quite a troubling way in this game. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously I didn't find that troubling because I was 12 when I when I played this, so Lucy was a, an older woman. Um, so I was well into that, like... Uh, the love interest angle. Uh, I suppose it's not explicit, is it? Um, it's no, not made explicit that there is a romantic component to it, but it leads you down that path. Yeah, it's it's not. And and for the majority of the game, I thought, oh, this is this is a this is a detective trying to, um, and you know, you have dialogue options to a degree. Well, that's a weird aspect of this game. Is like if you only pick. Um, you can pick a, a, like a personality type, right? For your, yeah, for McCoy. And so, if you pick one of those, yeah. you're like what you say in a conversation is governed by that. You don't choose it. Um, so he might be very polite, or he might be, um, you know, sort of surly. Yeah, <laughs> that was the fir- first time I'd seen the word surly. <laughs> <laughs> it might be, might be surly. Um, and and I didn't realize to begin with that that takes the option away from you to be surly or to be polite um which mm. gives it a more sort of cinematic feel when when it, the conversation flows that way but i think the best way to play it is um the mode where you can you can select um whatever you want but yeah you can you can be kind to lucy which feels like a natural thing to do because she's a vulnerable girl maybe human maybe replicant who's caught up in a in a sort of ring of terrorists seemingly you're like well this is yeah. not great you know, I'm not going to be surly to this poor girl. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately in this game, I ended up with um, 
with an ending where without you know aiming for it i ended up uh driving away in a, a car up north sort of uh bonnie and clyde style with uh mm. with lucy i was like oh hang on is that what this has been <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and that's the ending i got first time as well and yeah i was i was pleased with it uh, you know at the time i didn't think much about it but yeah mccoy's uh because well in his thirties or forties, it's a slightly strange dimension to, it. and she's she's sexualized in quite an awkward way, I think, and that's probably um, that begins with the film. Uh, but yeah, it's yeah, it's it feels it's, it's not it's not comfortable. No, it feels a little like. So this is one of those games which does not use the um, the characters. Or well, you know the 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 main characters of the film it's based on, but the characters it mm. does come up with are like analogous to ones that are in the film. So McCoy, yeah, absolutely. Uh, by the way, McCoy definitely a play on real McCoy, right? It's like, is he a real person? Uh, or not? Um, oh, I didn't, I didn't think of that. I, this is why you're here. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so he's he's you know a kind of slightly blander Ford stand-in. Um, and you've got Clovis, who is the, the sort of charismatic, um, intriguing uh, terrorist ringleader. You know, he's the he's the Roy Batty of the story, mm. and Lucy is the yeah. Rachel of the story. Um, but of course, Rachel's a grown up, <laughs> so so it yeah. reads slightly differently. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, you can argue that all replicants are only, you know, a maximum of four years old in reality. But uh, yeah, true. It, it, yeah, there are there weird. are cameos from from uh, the original movies cast, right? Like Sean Sean Young is there. Uh, you meet her in Tyrell, and you yeah. Can although do I didn't on her, I didn't. Uh, oh. I think that scene is one that's kind of randomised. Like you may you may get it or you may not. So. I don't think mm. I ever, I ever met. Interesting, but yeah, there's you get like um, a lot of the fun side characters like uh, Chew, the 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 guy who just does eyes as he protests. Yeah, um, he's there. <laughs> yeah. You can go and visit him in his is for some reason fridge like um, workshop. Um, yeah. JF Sebastian, you know, he's um, of, mm. of the Bradbury building. He. Um, he, I didn't see him. I didn't meet him, but I, I heard his voice on an answer phone machine, and I went and visited his, his apartment with the incredible grand ceilings and the, and the clockwork esque toys marching around in little sort of, yeah, um, you know, old fashioned uniforms. So there's there's a lot of yeah. the kind of peripheral um, voice cast, which kind of lends a, an authenticity to it. Yeah, I think that speaks to how how tricky the right situation was because yeah, you do have like some some real strong you know Sean Young's like quite an important part of the, the original Blade Runner movie, and yeah. then there she is in this game. But certain other things are like completely absent. Yeah, it's just a bit of a legal mess. Apparently, they did reach out to Harrison Ford to see if he wanted to voice his cameo in it, and they never heard back. Oh, <laughs> no response. Great ticks from Harrison Ford on that one. I can believe um, that. Although it does work very nicely, yeah. On the whole, it's I, I appreciate that this is a story that runs parallel to the film, but doesn't like it doesn't go for the cheap shots in terms of like crossover, you know, that it could do. Yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. about you. I only I only saw Deckard in um, it was in the background of a. There's a point where you 
catch up with a with a perp and to distract you to make his getaway he he's a he's a kind of shopkeeper of of uh, an antiques place and he um he takes a photo of you with an antique camera which has this flash which blinds you you know takes over the whole screen and so he can run off yeah. and and you make off after him but of course he's taken an actual photo so when you get back there you can you can then analyze that photo and in the background of that scene is um Harrison Ford Deckard I think it's the moment in the film where he finds a scale doesn't he I think it may be in, yeah. in Leon's uh, apartment and and he goes and speaks to a woman and he's like is it a fish scale and she says no snake and I think that's the moment yeah. that's going on in the background of your scene it's quite a subtle um uh, and if you don't analyze the photo you'll never see that yeah well actually that's that's another randomized bit so for me harrison ford wasn't in that photo it's just the scale oh. so i just i've timed it wrong i don't know <laughs> <laughs> but i've actually i've never seen his cameo i'm aware of it but in my playthroughs i've never crossed paths with uh, with rick deckard oh. um, but yeah you oh, get the scale cool. to analyze but then obviously the scale doesn't like that's part of a different investigation yeah he's handling that <laughs> and that's one. particularly baffling yeah it's baffling if you're 12 and haven't seen the movie and you're like okay I've got moreover, scale. you don't know the movie exists <laughs> let her know the case that it concerns <laughs> what's this lead that i've got what do i do with this scale in the end like cards on the table despite what i said in the um in my review was i did print out like a 30 page walkthrough for this when i originally played it because I wanted to, the stress of the idea of getting a bad ending was just too much for me. Yeah. Um, I didn't want the responsibility of people having unhappy lives or dying on on account of my incompetence. So it's funny, you know, when we when we uh, talked about System Shock Two, and you said, you know, when you were playing it when you were young, and you it distressed you coming across a scene and thinking that somebody maybe had just killed themselves, and if you got there sooner, you might have been able to stop it. Well, this game, yeah, yeah. is you know, it sort of is that. Like, yeah. it has those elements, <laughs> and it tells yeah. you, you know, well, there's there's a possibility that if you don't uh, take the right routes, if you don't find the right evidence, that you, you might not stop something, you might not catch up with someone. And so you have that sense of unease and, and like, a really exciting sense of time passing, which you don't normally get in this genre. Um, the other one of the of the time that I can think of that I really like is um, the Last Express, the Jordan Mechner game, where you're on a train and there's oh, a yeah. there's a ticking clock and events pass, regardless of whether or not you're there to see them. And you know, Blade Runner has a bit of that. It's quite um, it's quite unnerving and and quite alluring the fact that you're you, you might you just might not be there. That often yeah, in, the game's happening whether you're there to see it or not. Yeah, yeah, quite often in this game you give chase, right? There's some somebody, as you say, chucks a cauldron of bubbling green goo at you, and you you mm. follow them. And um, and I, I I must have took a wrong turn. I didn't catch up with that guy, but you can do. You know, there's um, there's a possibility you go exactly the right way, and you and you catch up with him right outside his hideout and have a little shootout there or not. Um, yeah, I, I've never managed that either. I always, for me, he turns up when I go home and he's just there on the rooftop walking very slowly towards me while I absolutely unload bullets <laughs> into him. Yeah, that's what happened with me as well. <laughs> and then Gaff turns yeah. up, doesn't he? See, Gaff, yeah. he, uh, he's the character yeah. in the film who um, who brings uh, Deckard back into the force. He speaks that kind of um, 
uh, amalgam of, of different languages um, that, depending on which version of Blade Runner uh, you watch, Deckard either doesn't know the language or he pretends not to. Like, with the narration, he says, of course I knew how to speak it. I wasn't going to make things easy for him. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and he appears uh, at the end of the film as well, of course, to go, uh, it's a shame she won't live. Although, uh, I've forgotten the I've forgotten the line, Phil. Uh, nobody does, you know. It says, you know, yeah. none of us live. I think you you committed to the Harrison Ford line about one hundred and ten percent more than Harrison Ford did. Yeah. So, fair play to you. Um, let's transition into nineties games court then to finish. Um, we'll weigh up its uh, its merits in the modern day. Uh, and we'll ultimately decide whether it uh, whether it deserves a place in the pantheon of '90s PC gaming classics, or whether it's just uh, warped um, nonsense uh, that's that's only subsisting on nostalgia alone. I think we've um, we've already made quite a strong case for it, haven't we? I don't think this one's massively up for debate. But um, will you be will you be on the prosecution or the defence for Blade Runner, Jeremy? Uh... The defense, I think. Sorry, I was I was mainly just um, working on remembering that line um, while I was speaking <laughs> just now, which which I have done. If, any, if anyone's interested, okay, good. Yeah, go on. Let's ha- let's hear it again. What do I need to say to tee you up? Um, so I think I think Deckard uh, Harrison Ford has like one one word in that uh, in that scene. So Gaff, Gaff says okay. to him, you know, you've done a man's job. And uh, and he asks him whether he's finished, and I can't remember what Harrison Ford says. Yes, <laughs> something like that. Yes. And then I say, yeah. uh, um, it's a shame she won't live. Then again, who does? There we go. It's the most thought-provoking okay. line of Blade Runner. Okay, I will have order in the court now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think I think we're both going to be on the side of the defense for this game. I I've got tons more respect for it after playing it um playing it this year or this this last week or so. There's a load to it that I didn't realize the complexity of. The AI things blow my mind. The randomized rep or human elements have blown my mind and now that I know Blade Runner is a film as well, <laughs> um I can appreciate how well it taps into that universe. It's not an easy thing to do at all. And Blade Runner's got to be one of the toughest games to uh, films to do that with. Still confused about it <laughs> because it's so beloved, uh, it's so distinct. Cyberpunk is easy to get wrong. Yeah, I think we've all learned that in the last few years uh, without throwing too much shade at Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a very distinct um, aesthetic that Westwood absolutely gets right. It's. I've seen I've seen it compared to Alien Isolation. This isn't my observation, but um, I think I, I agree with those um, similes in that Creative Assembly took the visual language of everything, every frame of the original movie, broke it down to its component parts, and developed this like this coder so that everything that they rebuilt had some element of that, even if it wasn't verbatim. It had some element of the movie set of the original in it. So it all felt of a piece. It felt terribly authentic, but it was new and it gave them the freedom to create new spaces in an entirely new um, space station on the Sevastopol. And I think 
that's what Westwood has achieved as well. It's broken down the movie into this like modular toolkit of lovely ambient lights and like rainy side streets and like uh, food stalls and grand uh, opulent buildings. And it's all new, but it all feels like you could be watching the film. It's just they've taken every element and turned it just slightly to avoid any licensing issues or or what have you. And what they've done is it's just like whatever, wherever you are, you're just around the corner from the movie, but absolutely part of the same place. And it's honestly, it's absolutely staggering. And the fact that this one studio in a three year spell put out Command and Conquer and then Red Alert and then this game. My goodness. Yeah. My goodness, Westwood. Yeah. It's... um. There's something really special about this this world that was so evocative to people, but was mostly built on the Warner Brothers backlot. You know, there's nothing there's nothing round the corner from what you could see, except that in this mm. game, they they allow you to go around that corner, and they've they've built that out. They've um, they've extended it and and brought a sort of um, geographical sense to to the LA of Blade Runner. You know, you can kind of walk between a lot of these areas that you see in the film and you and you see how they kind of connect up and it and it feels feels like a real real place. I mean there are there are some real locations in Blade Runner, right? Like the the Bradbury building is a real um building in in LA, that sort of yeah, um, yeah. eerie grandeur that it has. And I think the police station in this uh, game and the film is it's a it's a famous train station right in LA. I'm not sure which one it's called. Ah, but, um, interesting. I didn't know that. In the Museum of Sci-Fi and Culture, I think it's called in Seattle, uh, they have some uh, pretty cool uh, set elements and props from Blade Runner. Like they've got the car, they've got a few bits and bobs of Deckards in there, and uh, that's quite a that's quite a spiritual experience mm. <laughs> if you're if you're a nerd to spend time with that. That's like yeah. the Philivanic Museum in there because they had a, a massive like it's Seattle, so they had a big Nirvana exhibition going on. So like, oh, I've turned the corner from like the skull from Terminator, and then I've seen the car from Blade Runner, and then it's like, oh, this is Kurt Cobain's cardigan, <laughs> just ascended into like a very specific version of heaven. It's wonderful, amazing. Um, well, I think that will probably do it for for Blade Runner. Um, it is part of the pantheon of PC gaming classics. We would both, I think, implore you to track it down and give it a play if you're at all interested in uh, either that cinematic universe or the genre at the time. Um, maybe, oh, I don't know, do we do we recommend the Night Dive version or not? I mean, I can definitely recommend playing it on a Windows 98 PC if you, if you want to go all in. It still functions pretty well. Um, yeah, I think... Yeah, I don't uh, know. What do you think about the Night Dive version? Since the, the kind of backlash Night Dive of... You can still buy it and and play the original version if you so choose, um, right? And yeah, the the Night Dive one on on consoles is obviously, you know, it's more convenient to play portably in some respects. It works nicely there, but um, uh, yeah, it has some issues, but it's playable. You can certainly make it to the end. That's all anyone can ask. Uh, in the end, who does? <laughs> is that the line? Yeah. <laughs> Close. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's nothing worse than someone getting a film quote just slightly wrong. You have to say it right afterwards, <laughs> don't you? like immediately afterwards. So 
Next episode is going to be Fallout, um, the original isometric RPG, also from 97, and uh, also in the same tin of games that came with my PC. So easy street for me. Um, we'd we'd love to get your take your temperature on like the the kind of games we're covering on this, whether we're whether you're happy with deeper cuts like uh, like Blade Runner, or whether you want us to take on some of the more famous, more celebrated titles from the 90s. So um, do drop us a line on uh, on Discord if you're part of it, uh, or on Twitter, anywhere where we're going to see it. Yeah, and we can we can always uh, adjust our list of games accordingly to your tastes, because this is your podcast. Yeah, not once um, I've played them, though, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's a cut-off period. <laughs> and there's a few there's a few that I'll die for, like, later on. I don't know if we've revealed, like, the whole list, but there's, have, yeah. there's one. Oh, we have. Okay, so Trespasser is happening. Like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care if the listenership drops off by 99%, like, Trespasser's happening. Hopefully that doesn't um, happen, of course. Hopefully you are interested mm. in that oddity from uh, from DreamWorks Interactive. Uh, but, yeah. Let, let us know how you're feeling about the, the list of games, what you want to hear more or less of, and uh, we will uh, factor that in. Yeah, please. Uh, any any back. further thoughts, Jeremy? Yeah, uh, you, there's a back page Discord meant, or, you know, uh, backers will know of. You can uh, you can chat to us there. I, I lurk on there. And uh, obviously anything you, you tweet to the, the back page as well um, will get back to us. And uh, and yeah, you can vote on uh, on this uh, this episode's review was um, to either. Oh yeah, just like you to bring to appease or there. further upset Phil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much for listening to this. Um, we hope it's met your ears well, and we will catch you in the next episode, which will be Fallout. But we'll uh, we'll play out with a bit of ambient cyberpunk synth work from the Blade Runner soundtrack Mm -hmm. catch you next time goodbye I forgot to point out that um, you go everywhere in the spinner in this game, but um, I realised belatedly that I'd been flying my car to work. Uh, actually, like uh, McCoy lives like only a block away from the police station. Like it probably takes him <laughs> less time to walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly. Uh...
the less environmentally conscious uh, option. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I had a few episodes like that where like I just left my car somewhere. You know, you you like you get held up by somebody, you get captured, or you go off like pursuing oh, yeah, yeah. clues. And you're like, oh, where the fuck did I park my car? Yeah. <laughs> just walking around, <laughs> walking around for ages, and like, oh god, it's all the way over there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, I like the realism of that. I was sort of expecting that it would like just reset to the roof of my apartment. Yeah. But it doesn't. You, it's it's where you leave it. <laughs> um, and again, that's just like somehow typical of this game. The Blade Runner pl- um, pre- just... playthrough where you uh, you never find your spinner again. <laughs> <laughs> you have to walk over to Tyrell from your uh, from your apartment, <laughs> looking visibly dishevelled by the time you get there. Yeah. All right. Anyway, I might find a way to to chuck that in because that's a nice little anecdote. But 